Welcome to Artists in Depth. I'm Alan Powell. This season, my co-host Bill Key and I decided to change things up a bit. We're still talking with people in the acting and arts world, and we're still exploring links with their creativity and their identity, but we're also opening the conversation to include topics that involve the well-being of artists in the process of creation and other related subjects. Artists in Depth provides an opportunity for the listener to reflect on their artistic expression and their well-being. Let's get started. This episode of Artists in Depth is sponsored by Equity Showcase in Toronto, Canada. Embracing all artists by developing, uniting, advocating, and empowering the arts community. Visit equityshowcase.ca to discover all their initiatives. Our guest today is Kari Iveland. Kari is a Norwegian singer and songmaker who started her career in the mid-1980s when she completed vocal performance studies in Los Angeles and obtained a degree in musicology at the University of Oslo. She's released several albums and worked as a vocal coach, session singer, and freelance composer and lyricist. Kari re-entered academia in 2015 and completed her master's degree at the Norwegian Academy of Music. She is currently working as a PhD research fellow for the Department of Popular Music at the University of Agder. Our conversation with Kari took on many paths. Her childhood in Bangladesh being raised by missionary parents, how lyrics can be used to identify our life's narrative and her inspiration for her own lyrics, her two-year struggle with anorexia in her 20s, and reliving trauma on stage all found their way into our discussion. Just something you said to me back in September. Yeah. Right, about um, writing and lyrics being a narrative to one's life. And so I just wanted to say that now and maybe we'll come to it. So that's mm -hmm. all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we all have music as uh, sort of part of our life narratives, don't we? And also for me making music and singing they also become they they also sort of it works both ways it's sort of a relationship between making songs that might be based on my life that also become part of my narrative uh, life narrative so it's it works both ways as a musician i think so are you saying that you it's kind of like uh, the crystal ball where you, you you say this i'm writing out this song and then it becomes part of my life and it hasn't been yet no i think it becomes because the experience that 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 brings uh, the, just the whole creative experience and the process of creating it and also performing it and and right. then the ways people understand it because that's what my main theme of my uh, thesis is is the way we understand lyrics and how it's connected in particular how it's connected to the human voice and the sound of the voice and and the person the artist performing the song, um, how we sort of create meaning, um, not just from the song, but from a lot of things that are outside the song. And, and that has also been when people have listened to my songs and then they think uh, they are about something else maybe, or they have their own experience, that also gives something back to me. Sometimes a bit confusing. Uh, but mostly it's just wonderful because the, it, like his, people say that the songs take on a life of their own and sometimes they do um that uh, yeah, yeah. And you, can, you can't really control the life of the song and and, and there's no I point feel. in trying and, uh, but sometimes i sort of i have felt a couple of times the urge to just pull them back and say ah 
let me rewrite this because it's actually about something else. <laughs> right. But then it's it's that's that's part of the beauty and the risk that you take um, by releasing songs, I guess. Yeah. That's, risk. Mm. that's very interesting what you're saying about. And I guess that would depend on how I think the word is how metaphysical your lyrics are. You know, if your lyrics are, I love you, I want you to stay with me for the rest of our lives and I can't see anybody else ever being part of my life. If it's that, then it's that, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if you look at, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan, for instance, and yeah, other, you know, and where, where, where the lyrics are so metaphysical yeah. and you can listen to them, obviously, because the music is incredible, but you can listen to the lyrics a million times. And I, funny enough, on a different tack it was tom york from radiohead who said he, he when he writes a lyric or he sings a lyric he has to have a picture in his head of that yeah. lyric and that's yeah. for him but he gives it out and then you have your own picture in your head you know your um, own story coming out of the coming out of the lyric and yeah and and i I've, I've i'm also fascinated by what you said about it's not just the lyrics that create a, a change or a mood or or a thought in the listener but it's also the dynamic of the music so it's it's the cadence or the, the 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 melody or even the quality of the sound I think you, you yeah know. the timbre of the voice actually because yeah I mean the, if, if it's a child singing the song or if it's a yeah woman you yeah. don't hear the 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 age and and gender and race off sometimes you know you can yeah. sort of and that's been really interesting to to um, study these past years how we sort of bring that into our interpretation of a song mm -hmm. and, and you, it's very the the most the easiest way to to see that is in cover versions like um Johnny Cash you know hurt which is actually a Nine Inch Nails song, you know. Right. And and people think he's the original singer. It's him. It's all about um, him, and it's actually uh, Nine Inch Nails. He's able to do that. It doesn't always work with covers, though. That, that thing. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But sometimes you get what they say now is a new original because yeah. he brings oh, right. something to that performance, just yeah. by the quality of his voice. Mm. And you can hear his mm. voice and and. There's a lot of discussions on that. And, and uh, of course, musicologists have analyzed it and, you know, because it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny you should say that song, specifically that song, because when I first heard it from Johnny Cash, I thought, this is brilliant. So mm. brilliant to come from this man. Mm. Um, I know. And, I, and I, I'm just drawing also parallels from singing to actors as well and what they bring to the screen visually. Sidney Poitier said something about um, what an actor brings, uh, what the camera picks up on. It's the same thing um, is, is what the microphone picks up on in the voice. Can I go back to something you were saying earlier on about, about the writing of lyrics and where they come from with, you know, within you? What kind of place you have to either be in or put yourself in in mm. order to, for that creative flow to begin? Depends. Sometimes I write from a concept. You know the 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 album that you were referring to. Mm. Um, there were the lyrics were in a, sort of a dialogue between Rabindranath Tagore and Tagore. He the the Indian philosopher. Uh, he was the first first non European, I think, to to achieve a Nobel Prize in literature in 1913. And he's like the big huge figure in India. And I was born in India because I was. Oh, yeah. 
child of missionary. I grew up in in a mission. Yeah, a mission. Yeah, in Bangladesh, or it was called East Pakistan in the sixties. So, mm. and my my parents' friends were tea plant tea. They they were tea planters. That's is that the right name? No. Yeah, at least they worked on these huge tea plants and tea. Oh, yeah, in tea. Right. So, so my my <laughs> parents' friends were British mostly, but that that was something else. But I then grew up with Tagore because it's all of it, all the songs, everything is is a lot Tagore related. And I picked them up uh, just like five or six years ago, no more than that. And I just started to look, you know, how because my poetic language. I have never felt that it has been as Norwegian, even though I write in Norwegian, I've had a tendency of writing a little bit different um, because I I spent my first eight years uh, not, you know, outside Norway. So, and my parents, they were not into the Norwegian. It, it was all about Jesus. And then I had two older brothers that were brought Beatles and all these wonderful music into my life. So, um, and then I had all the child songs that were Tagore and Bengali and, uh, you know, so it was sort of a mix, mix of everything, but it was not the Norwegian traditional music. Um, so when I started to pick up his poetry, um, I just found myself again, sort of the way of, I thought, ah, these are some of the images that I've been trying to put words to mm. or experiences or, um, and then had nothing to do with religious beliefs or anything. It was just the way that uh, the, the descriptions of the world and, and, you know, everything, it just fit mm. me. So I found myself again. And that's why as I wrote, these lyrics in sort of a dialogue with him, not as translations or anything, but it just, I just felt that it corresponded. As a dialogue with Tagore? Yeah, some of them are, not all. Sure, no, sure. Okay. And, um, um, and back to where you, uh, what you ask, what, if I need to be in a special place or something, sometimes I put myself in that space and then I can use his, like I used his, words and that inspired me and then I found something else something else turned up uh when I woke up in the morning or went for a walk or something you know mm. melodies and lines just mm. pop up mm. or I could just go to the piano and just something starts growing mm. from mm. nothing it feels mm. like mm. so mm. for me it's it's very different it, it depends on what type of uh of uh, uh context and what am I what what's my task if I'm writing for others if it's about something in particular um but what I have found is that um a lot of people uh, and including musicologists and and everyone um engaging with music tend to think uh, that it has to do with using the music to express something you know um, and that you always you express on, and perform you perform a persona or you perform someone or you express something mm. that's that's actually not in the music 
uh, it's something outside the music. It's something, an idea, and you use the music to express it to mm. someone. Mm. Uh, and in my experience, I've found that for me, uh, I'm maybe as much engaged in the activity of musicking, just the pure activity of singing, and uh, which is just gives makes me happy or gives me, you know, sort of. I don't think of it necessarily as something I'm expressing or communicating or performing. I, it's just an activity. It's just something mm. I do. Mm. And it's in the doing that something, um, that it becomes meaningful rather than something meaningful uh, express is expressed through music. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. I get that. You're, you're simply being. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm into this becoming, you know, yeah. that I become someone in the process of of creating rather than creating something to express who I am. It, yeah, uh, I don't right. know. It's, yeah. well, it's, 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 <laughs> I'm just it's, trying to find the words because that's it's really hard to explain it. Also, the way we listen to music um, as a listener, I, I want to hear my own story in the music you know i can find my own story in someone else's music uh, if i am heartbroken i can listen i listen to sad music you you would think it would be the opposite wouldn't you that if you're sad you wanted to listen to something encouraging but what we probably do we listen to something sad that that it sort of reflects our own state of mind and that's mm. the wonderful and you you know that from coming from acting and and catharsis and the Aristotle the the way he talks about this way that you could relive your emotion and then have a sense of feeling that you're cleansed or catharsis or yeah. this this whole um, theory of of revisiting your emotions. Um, and, and we tend to do that and we feel better afterwards, which is which is really strange, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, the, I guess the, the other thing that I'm uh, I'm thinking about, too, is, is um, that, yeah, we, we listen to those sad songs because we want we need someone to identify with. Yes. We need, we need to be seen exactly. yeah. and then we can begin to heal. And I think writing songs represent exactly the same thing that when when I'm sad or I'm in a cough or I've experienced something horrible like writing a diary you know or, or something that you I can structure my experience in a poetic way or something and it just I get a sense of closure or it just it's provides some, some kind of identification but also a set of closure and there's a structure there's a beginning and an end I think it goes both ways yeah, yeah. David Byrne said in his in his in inimitable way you know music is a trick for making people listen to lyrics for longer yeah you know, it's kind yeah. of the, the music is is what compels you to keep listening and what you're talking about about emotional content like if someone sat down and read the lyrics of breathe by radiohead to me from a piece of paper breathe keep breathing you know like i i wouldn't be emotionally moved by that but what it is is the cadence of the music behind that that mm. and and i've got Weirdly, I feel tearful even saying this, even saying those lyrics out loud. There's something about those three notes. Breathe. Mm. Bang. There's something just opens up. 
straight away for me. I could, I've got goosebumps even, you know, and this, and I, as a therapist, actually have been thinking about, uh, been wondering about if there's a way to bring music into therapy to help people connect with emotions that they're not connecting with. That is really close to my heart, actually. I think because um, in several ways and uh, music has just writing music has, you know, lots of studies that have shown that it has a therapeutic value, both as listening and writing music does, because it can give you sort of access some of some of this emotional that is that you don't get through words because we've been maybe we've been living in in this the, some decades now that everything should be fixed if you just can talk about it that's what we've been told as long as you can talk about it then you'll be fine and as long as you can write about it you'll be fine and we all know that that's not true um people write songs and they're still depressed you know, um, people talk, they go to the therapist and they're still depressed. So, but music has this way, maybe, and art does that, that also can reach uh, beyond the words, you know, just as sort of a musical experience or something that, and, and I think there are two sides to it. It's, it's, can be therapeutic and at least it can give you good feeling or or mirror like we said you can find yourself in the music and that can feel comforted that someone else has experienced the same thing and you don't feel as alone or you know whatever but it can also open um up for experiences and that you are not ready to deal with so um that's one thing that you can trigger things that you're not ready to. Um, and another thing is writing about uh, um, experiences like I have done a little bit in my life um, from my, I've had um, experience with anorexia when I was 20 to 22 years old. So, and in 2002, did, there was a documentary about that. I, I was talking about my experience with it and some of the songs, I wrote some songs, <clears throat> but only one of the songs were about that experience. The rest was just my first album and it was about love and you, what have you, you know, all the, but everyone connected the lyrics and the content of the lyrics to this film and to my anorectic past. Right. What, what was the film? Uh, it's called Weightless uh, in Norwegian, Weightless, Weightless. So it was on movie theatres in Norway. And uh, uh, I see. I've been very lucky. I've been really, really healthy <laughs> since 1989. So for me, it's it's really not something I could do anymore. Um, sure. So, and that's why I could revisit it without being scared of it being triggered again. So I could mm. really do that and then try to, again, create another narrative about anorexia because it's so, people mm. are so focused on, on the visuality of it and, and the way you, again, using the, the body as um, a tool, uh, more focused on that instead of uh, then the experienced body and the lived body. So, mm. but that's another, that's for another show, I guess. <laughs> mm. But um, still I experienced that maybe some part of writing about um, experiences that are 
um, traumatic or emotionally complex mm. can be good. But repeated performances, because I did that, I, I had some concert after, and that just brought it back over and over again, mm -hmm. which was not good because I was reliving the traumas over and over on stage, yeah, on stage in front of people. And yeah. Eric Clapton is talking about that with tears in heaven. Oh yeah, that of course. Is, he, he actually stopped performing it. I'm not sure because I've seen many different explanations to it, but that might be one of the reasons because you get reminded well, absolutely. Every time, and you have a lot of uh, an audience that read their own stories into it, yeah. that often have a need to express these things to you. Yeah. They want to tell yeah. you about there, and and then you have, you know. Yeah, so it's funny. I just wanted to say that. In, no, sure. It's Interesting. Really... I'm gonna, can I just ask what you did to help yourself to heal and to come out of the anorexia? And to... um, it's I don't really know. Oh. Um, but um, I had a wonderful psychiatrist. Uh, I was lucky enough because I was hospitalized for about two years. Uh, I was 20 years old. I started at the music department, musicology department at the University of Oslo, being the first one accepted as a jazz, mm -hmm. you know, everything mm -hmm. in the world was open and wow, you know. Mm -hmm. And the experience that I had that I have now like, what is it 40 years later i've found some psychological ex uh, explanation to what i actually felt and i'm trying to figure it out so i'm i'm not sure i got it right but this sense of difference between the i um, me as a subject i as a subject and me as the object um the relational me you know how i how i function or perceive my function or is what is reflected back to me uh, when I'm with other people and the sense of I, the sense of me as a subject. Um, I just couldn't bridge the gap. Uh -huh. It was too much of a distance for me. That That's what I remember. I, I just couldn't. And it might have to do with being a missionary child and being moved all across the world you know a couple of times and and when I was a kid I spoke five languages a day and there were different religions and different mm -hmm. ways of you know greeting people and everything um and then coming home to a country that that's called Norway and that wasn't home for me it was home mm -hmm. for my parents but mm -hmm. it was a strange place and right. cold and, and strange so might have to do with something like that I don't really know but I I got, I was hospitalized, yeah. And I had this wonderful psychiatrist that actually didn't know too much about anorexia, which was really good because he pr didn't project any knowledge. Uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't try to, to make me fit in to some uh, understanding that they had that time because anorexia, they've been looking for one stereotype one explanation one solution and they tend to forget that there are a lot of reasons for being anorexic and mm. a lot of different personalities mm. that can become anorexic mm -hmm. so um yeah for two years and then i think i at one or i know that I, at one point they tried a lot of medication that are not they can't do that anymore uh, mm. which is very good mm. um to me and another girl she died a couple of years later but we were 
sort of at the same stage and the same weight and same height and everything was the same so we were treated the same mm. uh, <laughs> and uh i just realized that that i i i wanted to die that was i just okay i'm done mm. this is it i can't do this anymore and then something shifted and uh, i decided if i feel this good about deciding to die i just let go of the fight and the struggle and everything just surrender to something um then maybe i should give it a try to live 10 more years so i had this and then i just started eating because up to then i had this thing that if i put you know i could talk myself out of anorexia and my psychiatrist in the beginning, he said, you can't really, you have to eat. <laughs> you have to eat your way out of anorexia. You have to <laughs> eat as well. You can't just talk yourself. <laughs> Sounds like a clever and, guy. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to eat because then it was easy. No, sure. for me. It felt like a relief. People talk about self-punishment mm. and everything. It just doesn't feel like that. It feels mm. like the opposite. Mm. Eating felt like punishment. Uh, so it gets... I got a sense of relief and I got calm and I don't know. Mm. So starting to eat, I had to start to eat. And, and three months after I was released from hospital, I moved to Los Angeles all by myself, 21 years old, and could establish uh, an identity or at least an experience of myself in a completely different environment. And, and that just helped me. Well, and, and interestingly, you were saying that you spent your childhood, you know, all your developmental years moving from place to place and and being perceived by people in a certain way and and at the same time trying to perceive yourself. And, and as you were talking about the juxtaposition between that, how do I perceive myself and how do people perceive me? And then fast forward 20, 20 something years and you you're in los angeles and you describe it as establishing an identity the beginning of i don't know if this and that was but that was my choice and your, i think that had to do ah, with yes it, it was my yeah. choice yeah 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 and then something just shifted so i haven't done a lot of therapy actually um mm. i i had these patterns that if you're you know you work in mental health you know mm. that anorexia is the symptoms are a lot of ritualistic behavior and yeah. and you know you go through all of that which that, that can provide a sense of safety yeah because it's not like one ritual that transforms something it's it's repetitive and it gives yeah. a pattern yeah and some way of yeah you can i don't know if it's control but at least it's something something um, you can do something, something I, tangible yeah, and, that you can do that yeah yeah, and you also feel that you're possessed by some anorectic agency that just controls you in a way. So I don't, mm. I don't think most feel in control, but a lot of people say that they feel controlled. And that's probably a part of yourself that psychologists say that it's a part of yourself that you sort of an alien self or you 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 this this self that you create. I, I don't know. I just know that I it was this being controlled control it was really but it's, it's a long time ago right. now but yeah. um it's it's very complex and uh and uh i what i did uh when i came back to norway uh, a year later i started doing crossword puzzles when i 
went to bed at night because that's like you said at night all these things when you yeah. try to go to sleep that's yeah. when it just starts sort yeah. of partying in your mind right but, <laughs> uh, and and uh, you wake up in the four in the morning and it's all you know mm -hmm. so what I had I had a crossword puzzle uh by my bed because this was before Netflix and all the things we can use now mm. and that just occupied my brain enough mm. uh, that all the calorie co uh, counts and did I say this who liked me who, you know all these things yeah it just disappeared after a while yeah 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 so wow. and, yeah. and uh, I later learned that that's a so it's a primitive way of cognitive therapy sure, that you right. try to re rewire your brain <laughs> in a way uh, yeah. by doing different behavior and not responding the same way right and uh, I didn't know that that was just the only way I, I didn't want to talk about anorexia anymore I was fed up talking about it mm. uh, or myself and I just wanted to get on with my life and 10 years later from I'd given myself the promise I said if you're and rectic in 10 years then it's okay you do whatever you need to do mm. uh, that's fine but then 10 years later I I didn't have that way of thinking and I had a, a small child and and life was different wow so. we've covered we've covered quite a bit of ground yeah we have haven't we it's been wonderful I really enjoyed where we went and thank yes, you for being same. so open and honest and knowledgeable the same the same that's the, that's the beauty of getting older isn't it yeah wiser I'm not, we're not we don't have to become anyone anymore we can just be if you've been inspired or moved by what you've heard on today's podcast i invite you to visit our website artistsindepth.com there you can sign up for podcast reminders get in touch with us through email or connect with other like-minded artists by sharing your thoughts on our blog and joining our community and finding out more about our initiatives. It's free and it's rewarding. Until next time. This episode of Artists in Depth is sponsored by Equity Showcase in Toronto, Canada. Embracing all artists by developing, uniting, advocating, and empowering the arts community. Visit equityshowcase.ca to discover all their initiatives.